Radio Derb is on the air. Welcome, listeners. That was the progressive metal version of Haydn's Derbyshire March Number no. 2. And this is your elegiacally genial host, John Derbyshire, ruminating on the week's news. The news was, of course, dominated by the assault last Saturday on Israel out of the Gaza Strip. Commentators on the news outlets and social media have had all week to tell us what they think. So, while I shall, of course, do my best with observations and speculations, don't expect anything dazzlingly original from Radio Derb. Reviewing Arthur Kersler's book Spanish Testament in February 1938, George Orwell wrote the following thing, quote, You cannot be objective about an aerial torpedo, and the horror we feel of these things has led to this conclusion. If someone drops a bomb on your mother... Go and drop two bombs on his mother. The only apparent alternatives are to smash dwelling houses to powder, blow out human entrails and burn holes in children with thermite, or to be enslaved by people who are more ready to do these things than you are yourself. As yet... No one has suggested a practicable way out. End quote. That was 1938, please note, well before World War II. Eighty-five years on, it still happens. Here and there, now and then, it still happens that a nation faces an Orwell moment. Someone's dropped a bomb on their mother. And there's nothing for them to do but go drop two bombs on his mother. If they're a civilised nation, they won't feel any joy in doing this. To laugh, cheer and exult while dropping a bomb on someone's mother marks you unmistakably as a barbarian. It's only that, as Orwell said, as yet... No one has suggested a practicable way out. So, Israel's facing an Orwell moment, not for the first time. And to judge from the merry party spirit in evidence among last Saturday's Hamas raiders, as they carted off their victims naked and bound while gleefully shouting out praises to God... To judge from that, it's not hard to figure out who the barbarians are here. Yes, I'm with Israel. There wouldn't be much point in denying it. I have a paper trail going back more than 20 years with pro-Israel pieces scattered through it. Scanning through my archives just now, there's very little I would change. And yes, I see Saturday's event as a barbarian raid into civilised territory. 
Call me eccentric, but I prefer civilization to barbarism. If Israel were to be wiped out by critters like those Hamas goons, that would be a net loss for civilization. All that said, those are foreign places there, dropping bombs on each other's mother. I'm an American. My very strong preference is that my country, the USA, stay out of the fight. Uncle Sam spent four years and a ton of money training my son to be a paratrooper. Junior is a civilian now, but I assume he's on some kind of reserve list. If the USA were in existential peril, he'd be called up, and I would be proud to see him go off to fight. Heck, I'd enlist myself, if the recruiting officer judged my withered old hide to be worth the expense of a uniform and a rifle. Still, I very much do not want Americans maimed or killed because two tribes 4,000 miles away have claims on each other's land. Not if the tribes are Jews and Arabs. Not if they're two varieties of Eastern Slav. Not if they're Island Chinese and Mainland Chinese. Sort it out yourselves, guys. For observers of my vintage, the October 7th attack was, of course, a here-we-go-again moment. It took me back to June 1967, when I was sitting with some others at a table in the Liverpool University Students' Dining Hall, listening to a Jewish classmate, a high-spirited and elegant young woman who had spent some of her teenage years on a kibbutz. I forget if the Six-Day War was over at that point, or still in progress, but that classmate gave us a good historical grounding. Although from the Israeli side, of course. None of us expected Israel's victory in that war. After it happened, there was a newspaper cartoon going around, based on the old Superman comics that we'd all grown up reading. The cartoon had two frames. Left frame, a nerdy, round-shouldered, pencil-necked, big-nosed young Jewish guy in street clothes. You know, Star of David on his briefcase or some such signifier. About to enter a phone booth. Right frame, five minutes later, a big, bold, grinning, muscular guy in Superman costume stepping out of the phone booth. That impression lingered for decades in the minds of my generation, with an occasional boost from events like the Yom Kippur War and the Entebbe Raid. Such a small nation seeing off so many much bigger enemies. The stories we heard about the Israeli Secret Service taking care of covert business were also impressive. A terrorist leader in some Middle East hotel 
picking up the phone to take a call and getting his head blown off. That sort of thing. Overt or covert, you better not mess with Moshi. Well, those impressions took a major hit this week. Israel was caught totally flat-footed by Saturday's raid. What on earth went wrong there? Seymour Hirsch, at his Substack account, tells us it was Netanyahu's fault. The Israeli Prime Minister, says Hirsch, thought he had Hamas in his pocket after a raft of concessions that he'd made to them. He was far more worried about settlers in the West Bank who wanted to stage a big religious celebration just when tension was high there. Quote from Hirsch. The Sukkot celebration, held near a Palestinian village known in Hebrew as Haware, would need extraordinary protection given the tension over the latest violence. And the local Israeli military authorities, with the approval of Netanyahu, ordered two of the three army battalions, each with about 800 soldiers, that protected the border with Gaza to shift their focus to the Sukkot festival. End quote. Whoops! Of course, I don't know if that truly is what explains the failure. If it is, though, then I bet Seymour Hirsch is right. Netanyahu's prime ministership, and probably his entire political career, is history. Or, at any rate, soon will be. There is a case to be made that the long-term future for Israel herself may be dark. David Goldman makes that case over at the Law and Liberty website, October 11th. Goldman is Jewish, he's religiously observant, and he's a Zionist. His essay is nonetheless pessimistic. Sample quote, edited. The present generation of Israelis has become soft and complacent. Its youth has not been called on to fight since their grandparents did their military service. Israel has not fought a ground war since Lebanon in 1982, and no serving officer of the IDF has combat experience. The civil disorder that plagued Israel this year over judicial reform also indicates a weakness in the fabric of Israeli society. This reached into the armed forces. Hundreds of Air Force reservists last July declared that they would not report for duty to protest the reforms. This breach of discipline is unprecedented in a country where the reporting rate for reservists previously exceeded 100%. Because some superannuated reservists reported, although not required to. 
the desire of secular Israelis to be an ordinary country, whose main activity is the pursuit of individual fulfilment, rather than a Jewish state, stands in terrible contrast to the mass murder of Israelis simply because they are Jews. End quote. I'm not one-tenth as smart as David Goldman, and I can say that with confidence because I know David personally. But I can claim a kind of precedence here. Twenty-one and a half years ago, I posted a column on National Review Online under the title, Does Israel Have a Future? I concluded, sadly of course, that it does not. In support of my case, I named two fellow pessimists, Richard Nixon and Ron Unz. For Nixon's verdict, I referred to Pat Buchanan's book, The Death of the West, which had just come out. Nixon was, as Pat quotes Golda Meir saying, Nixon was one of the best friends Israel ever had. He nonetheless turned his thumb down when asked about the country's long-term prospects. There was no malice in Nixon's opinion, only reasoned calculation. Ron Unz, who is also Jewish, unloaded his own pessimism in the letters columns of Commentary magazine. Quote, I expect Israel's trajectory to follow that of the temporary crusader kingdoms, surviving for 70 or 80 years following its 1948 establishment, then collapsing under continual Muslim pressure and flagging ideological commitment. End quote. Did last week's intelligence failures arise from that flagging ideological commitment? Again, I don't know. That column of mine that I'm taking all this from is dated January 2002, though. Ron Unz's 70 or 80 years on from 1948 gets you to the zone from 2018 to 2028. Right now, we're just halfway through that zone. As a footnote to that segment, let me just note that Moorland's trilemma came to mind at some point during the week's news. I covered Moorland's trilemma in my podcast of April 1st last year. Here is the relevant clip. A trilemma is like a dilemma, but more so. If you're faced with a dilemma, you have two options, but you can't choose both. In a trilemma, you have three options, but you can't choose to take all three. You may only be able to choose one of the three, or you may be able to choose two, but not all three. 
British demographer Paul Morland, who has a new book just out, argues that under today's conditions of economic and cultural modernity, every nation is faced with a trilemma. There are three options, but a nation has to pick two and leave the other one unpicked. The three options are 1. Ethnic continuity, 2. A thriving economy, and 3. A comfortable lifestyle without the huge stress of mixing child raising and a modern economy. Note that option 3 there implies low fertility. If citizens want that comfortable, low-stress lifestyle, you're heading for population decline. For examples, Moreland offers Japan, which has chosen options 1 and 3, ethnic continuity and that comfortable, low-fertility lifestyle at the cost of a lacklustre economy. Britain, on the other hand, has chosen options two and three, the thriving economy and the comfortable low fertility lifestyle at the sacrifice of ethnic continuity. And then Israel, the only advanced modern nation with total fertility rate well above replacement level. So Israel has chosen options one and two. Ethnic continuity and a thriving economy at the sacrifice of an easygoing, low fertility lifestyle. That was pretty upbeat. Demographic projections can be famously misleading though. Recall the population bomb that we were being warned about 50 years ago by Paul Ehrlich and such. Fertility measures for Israel, Palestine, Arab Israelis and secular versus religious Israelis are much argued about. I'll skip over that argument here and just wonder aloud whether... David Goldman's fears that what he calls the desire of secular Israelis to be an ordinary country might, as years pass, might triumph over patriotism with all the sacrifices that patriotism involves in a neighbourhood like the Middle East. Then my thoughts wandered back to Morland's trilemma. And it occurred to me that you could, to a fair approximation, you could express it more crisply with just one word for each leg of the trilemma. Thus, number one, ethno-nationalism. Number two, economism. Number three, hedonism. From there, my mind wandered back to those video clips from Saturday's Massacre. The happy, harmless, 
heedless hedonism of those young people dancing to their music when the wolf pack arrived. Is there a hideous kind of symmetry there somehow? Some kind of warning? Or do I just let my thoughts wander too much? Uh, still another footnote on the October 7th attack. Sorry about this. I, I set out today not intending to say this much. In fact, I had the vague idea yesterday to say nothing at all about Israel and Palestine in this week's podcast, on the grounds that you would all be thoroughly fed up of hearing about it. I had to abandon that idea, though. There just wasn't enough happening elsewhere. And I myself had been so marinated in a week's worth of Middle East news, I couldn't concentrate on what little other news there was. So, another footnote. This one concerning ex-President Donald Trump. Just let me preface it by saying what I have said many times before. I was disappointed in Trump as a president, and I hope he is not the Republican Party presidential candidate next November. However, if he is the GOP candidate, I shall vote for him rather than for any likely Democrat candidate that I know of. As erratic and ineffectual as Trump's presidency was, it did far less harm than Biden's has, or than Gavin Newsom's would, let alone nightmare scenarios like a Hillary Clinton or Kamala Harris run. I'll give Trump credit where credit's due, though, and it's definitely due on his so-called Muslim ban. Just to remind you, in January 2017, right at the beginning of his presidency, Trump signed an executive order banning travel to the United States from seven majority Muslim countries. The ban, of course, generated much shrieking and rending of garments on the multiculti left. Cries of Islamophobia! Xenophobia, racism, rang out from sea to shining sea. There was a spell of lawfare, outfits like the ACLU trying to get the ban declared illegal. Eventually, in mid-2018, the US Supreme Court upheld the ban in a slightly modified form, spelling out which categories of visa from which countries were banned. It was, of course, a perfectly sound policy. Muslims have serious and angry disagreements with other ethnies, most notably, but by no means only, with Jews. Why should we import ethnic conflicts from other parts of the world? While the fuss over Trump's proposed ban was underway, I offered the following opinion here at Radio Derb, September 15th, 2017, quote from myself. 
The most astonishing, most incredible statistic of our age is that the USA admitted more Muslims for settlement in the 15 years after 9-11 than it did in the 15 years before. End quote. The folly of having done so was in plain sight and sound uh, this week as Muslims and Jews faced off in rowdy demonstrations. Joe Biden, of course, rescinded Trump's order as soon as he was settled in the White House. Now we are waving Muslims in by the thousand across our southern border. Well, in July this year, campaigning in Council Bluffs, Iowa, Trump promised that if re-elected as president next November, he would reintroduce a ban, an even stronger one. Quote, Under the Trump administration, we imposed extreme vetting and put on a powerful travel ban to keep radical Islamic terrorists and jihadists out of our country. Well, how did that work out? We had no problem, right? They knew they couldn't come here if they had that moniker. They couldn't come here. When I return to office, the travel ban is coming back even bigger than before and much stronger than before. We don't want people blowing up our shopping centres. We don't want people blowing up our cities, and we don't want people stealing our farms. So it's not going to happen. End quote. That's encouraging. However, this is Trump talking, so look carefully before you buy. How exactly will this new ban be bigger and stronger than the previous one in 2018? The guy does have a habit of over-promising. As a matter of fact, the 2018 ban was first advertised to us when he was on the campaign trail in December 2015. Trump advertised the ban as a complete ban on Muslims entering the USA. Quote from The Guardian, December 7th, 2015, quote, Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski said Trump's proposed ban would apply to everybody, including Muslims seeking immigration visas as well as tourists seeking to enter the country. Another Trump staffer confirmed that the ban would also apply to American Muslims who were currently overseas presumably including members of the military and diplomatic service. In a quote, This does not apply to people living in the country, Trump said in an interview on Fox News, but we have to be vigilant. End in a quote, end quote. And then, of course, there's the issue of how well this bigger, stronger ban will survive the lawfare sure to be launched against it by the ACLU, etc. 
All right, all right. The guy's heart is in the right place. I give him credit for that. If a Muslim ban were constitutional, which it probably isn't, it would be a blessing for the USA. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. The folly of mass Muslim immigration into non-Muslim countries is slowly dawning on Europe. It dawned on the French yesterday when stupendous numbers from all over the Muslim world demonstrated in Paris. There are somewhere around five or six million Muslims in France. No one's sure of the exact number. Whatever it is, it's way too many for a peaceful, stable society. Similarly with Sweden, as we've been reporting on here at vide.com. It's not hard to figure out, even if you're a hundred years old. Here's a guy who actually is a hundred years old. Henry Kissinger, being interviewed for Politico yesterday. He's referring to Arabs in Berlin celebrating the October 7th attack. Here's Henry. It was a grave mistake to let in so many people of totally different cultural and religious and concepts because it creates a pressure group inside each country that does that. Item. Race and sex, race and sex. If it's not the one darn thing, it's the other. Last week I told you about the nation of Zimbabwe, whose population is 98% black, electing a white lady to represent them in the 2023 Miss Universe pageant next month in El Salvador. Another week, another aspiring Miss Universe. This is 28-year-old Marina Machete of Portugal, awarded the title Miss Portugal. The lady is, in fact, yes, you guessed it, a gentleman. She's not the first such either. Miss Universe Netherlands, chosen back in July, is also male. What on earth's going on here? What's going on is the Miss Universe pageant has been acquired by Anne Jakapong Jakrajutatip a Thai business mogul who began identifying as a woman five years ago. Last year, he bought not only the Miss Universe pageant, but also the Miss USA and Miss Teen USA competitions. And he's from Thailand. Thailand, huh? Trannies, eh? Yes, I lived there for three months back in 1972. I got stories. 
Never mind that, though. Let's just hope this Jacra Jutatip character keeps his hands off Miss Bum-Bum. Uh, the pageant, I mean. Not... Uh, <clears throat> Next item. Item. After all that pessimism I gave you on Israel's long-term prospects, here's something a bit more cheering on this week's troubles. The last really big dust-up in the Middle East was the Yom Kippur War of 1973. I hadn't been long in the USA when it broke out. I was washing dishes for a living in the New York City suburbs. A major talking point in the kitchens at that time was the gas crisis. Arab members of OPEC cut oil production and banned the export of petroleum and its products to countries that supported Israel. That, of course, included us. There were long lines at the gas stations. Will something like that happen again? Not likely. For one thing, world patterns of production and consumption of oil are different. For another, the Arab countries are even more fed up with the Palestinians now than they were then, and there is, anyway, less policy coordination among them. Plus, there are electric vehicles taking up some of the slack. And then we have the strategic oil reserve. Depleted, yes, but still enough there to weather a 1973 level crisis. The Washington Post thinks that if Iran comes under attack from Israel or the USA, oil prices might soar. If there is such an attack, though, I think we'll have more to worry about than gassing up the Camry. Item. I'm a little late in noticing the Nobel Prize in Physics Awards. This year's went to three physicists from three different institutions. Let their names be known. Pierre Agostini of Ohio State University, Ferenc Krauss of the University of Munich, and Anne Louie of Lund University in Sweden. Congratulations to all. What did these scientists collectively do to get themselves a Nobel Prize? They figured out how to create extremely, extremely short pulses of light. Pulses lasting mere attoseconds. An attosecond is 10 to the minus 18th seconds. A quintillionth of a second, in other words. A millionth of a trillionth of a second. There are more than twice as many attoseconds in a second as there have been seconds since, on current theories, the universe began. What is an attosecond flash of light good for? Well, not for finding your dropped house keys on a dark porch, that's for sure. I shall leave you to look up the actual answer for yourselves. 
For me, the word attosecond brings to mind one of those silly jokes that we young science geeks used to trade about fictitious units of measurement. So far as I know, the millihelen is the only one to have broken out of geek circles. One millihelen is the degree of female facial beauty required to launch one ship. Atto second reminds me of igni second from back in the days when you had to put an actual key in an actual keyhole to start your car. One igni second was the time that elapsed between slamming the car door shut and locked and realising that you'd left your key in the ignition. Boomers will understand. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time and attention, and I hope you celebrated appropriately on Columbus Day this Monday past. What a great man he was, Columbus. And, as I feel sure I have mentioned before, not a phony, but the genuine article. OK, some sign-out music. How do you feel about umlauts, listener? I know some people find them intimidating, even a bit scary. The late P.J. O'Rourke once suggested that we'd get more respect from the other nations of the world if we spelled USA with an umlaut over the U. USA, you see? Personally, I can boast that I'm quite at home with the umlaut. I had it explained to me at an early age that when, in an English word, a vowel alongside another vowel has an umlaut over it, that just means that both vowels are pronounced separately, not made into a diphthong. Naive, cooperation, and so on. Then, in high school, I took German as my modern language, with all those umlauts on A, O and U. Yes, those two little dots and I are good friends from way back. I know the difference between a Russian letter E and a Russian E umlaut. I can even handle Hungarian, which has two different umlauts, a short one and a long one. Umlaut-wise, I am Renaissance man. I'll admit, though, that I was baffled recently when a friend introduced me to the music of a 19th-century Belgian composer whose name is spelled thus. Y-S-A-Y-Umlaut-E An Umlaut on a letter Y? I'd never seen that before, and I've been to Belgium several times. I had to look up the pronunciation on Wikipedia. They say it's Isai. I guess I'll go with that. 
Here's the opening theme of Isaiah's poem Elegiac in D minor, which is famous enough among people musically better informed than I am to have its own Wikipedia page. There will be more from Radio Derb next week.